Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 141 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 1, The Crash. It is a terrible scene. Kamarov burned up. All the instruments burned. We must quickly find out what prevented the main parachute from unlatching. Those were the words of Chief Designer Mission after he arrived at the Soyuz-1 crash site. Once ground control determined the landing site, the Reserve Search and Rescue Service at the town of Orenburg was called into operation to locate the descent module. It was a beautiful and sunny morning at the landing site, and visibility was evidently very good. The commander of one of the AN-12 search aircraft reported to the helicopter commander that he could see Soyuz-1 in the air. The helicopter commander began a rapid descent. Then the helicopter turned sharply to the right and many of the group members saw the re-entry vehicle down in a green field. It was lying on its side and the parachute could be seen right next to it. And then... The soft landing engines kicked in, which alarmed the specialist on the helicopter because the engines were supposed to switch on just before the landing of the re-entry vehicle right above the ground. The first helicopter landed 70 to 100 meters from the capsule, which was surrounded by a cloud of black smoke. The fire inside the vehicle was still very intense. The bottom of the ship, with its soft landing engines, had in fact completely burned through. Witnesses claimed that streams of molten metal were falling on the ground. Along with foam fire extinguishers, they used earth around the ship to temper the fire. The vehicle was completely destroyed while the fire was being extinguished, and the spot looked like a small earthen mound beneath the peak of which was the cover for the hatch crawlway. The rescue service originally communicated on an open channel with ground controllers at Moscow, Tyretam, and Yevpatoria, although they did speak in code. Once the rescuers had seen the ship on the ground and on fire, one of the pilots had cryptically reported, quote, I see the object. The cosmonaut needs urgent medical attention out in the field. At that point, perhaps to preclude rumors, the search service terminated all communications with the three control centers, 
For the next few hours, there was no news from the site, as Mission, Karamov, and others anxiously waited for any scrap of news. Kamanin, meanwhile, landed at Orsk Airport about two hours after the Soyuz 1 impact, fully expecting to meet Kamarov there. Once out of his plane, he was told that the ship had landed 65 kilometers away and that it was burning and that the cosmonaut had not been found. Another unconfirmed report came in that Kamarov was wounded but alive in a hospital in a town three kilometers from the landing site. The Air Force General decided to go directly to the landing site first, although he had been explicitly ordered to wait for a call from Moscow to report on Kamarov's status. Back at the control centers, there was complete confusion. Ustinov in Moscow was frantic for information. He began calling up party secretaries in Orenburg and Orsk on special lines, but he could not reach anyone. Although the vehicle had landed at 0624 hours, Ustinov received no information on the state of the cosmonaut for the next three and a half hours. When Kamanin arrived at the landing site, the Soyuz 1 descent module was still on fire. He was not the first high space official on the scene. Academian Grigory Petrov, the director of the Academy of Sciences, Space Research Institute had arrived there first and was directing efforts to assess the situation. There was still no sign of the cosmonaut. Local residents reported that the ship had fallen towards the earth at a great speed and that the parachute was turning and not filled with air. They confirmed the observations of the search and rescue service that at the moment of the landing, there were some explosions followed by the fire. Kamanin recalled, quote, A cursory examination of the ship convinced me that Kamarov was dead and was still in the remains of what used to be his ship. I ordered to clear out the debris on the ground and search for Kamarov's body. Simultaneously, I sent one of the workers by helicopter and others by automobile to the local hospital in order to verify the story of the injured cosmonaut. After an hour of excavations at around 0930 hours, we discovered the body of cosmonaut Kamarov among the remains of the ship. Finding the body had been a difficult job. One of the rescuers recalled that, quote, the group's physicians set to work. They shoveled away the top layer of dirt from the top of the mound from the hatch cover. After the dirt and certain parts of instruments and equipment were removed, the cosmonaut's body was found lying in the center chair. The physicians cleaned the dirt and the remnants of the burned helmet phone from the head and they pronounced the death to be from multiple injuries to the cranium, spinal cord, and bones, end quote. Kamanin, meanwhile, flew back to Orsk and personally telephoned the Central Committee Secretary, Ustinov, with the following short message. I was at the location. Cosmonaut Kamarov has died. The ship burned up. 
The primary parachute of the ship did not open and the reserve parachute did not fill with air. The ship hit the ground at a speed of 35 to 40 meters per second. After impact, there was an explosion of the braking engines and a fire started. I was not able to report on the fate of the cosmonaut earlier since nobody could see anything and during that time we extinguished the fire in the ship by covering it with dirt. Only after carrying out excavations were we able to find Kamarov's body. At noon on April 24th, Ustinov called Soviet General Secretary Brezhnev, who was at an international conference of communist parties in Czechoslovakia. Ustinov also edited a task report that was issued after a full 12 hours of silence from the Soviet press. The official line was that although the flight had been eventless until re-entry, when the main parachute was deployed at a height of 7 kilometers, the spaceship, according to preliminary reports, crashed at great speed as the result of the parachute cords getting entangled, killing the cosmonaut Komarov. In the early afternoon, state commission members Karamov, Keldish, as well as Chief Designer Mission arrived at the impact point. Soon after that, senior engineers for the Central Design Bureau of Experimental Machine Building, including Deputy Chief Designer Pavel Tisbin and specialists involved in the Soyuz development, arrived to catalog and inspect the entire landing area. It wasn't until the end of the day that mission informed the operations control group of Kamarov's death and that a government commission would be formed to investigate the causes of the accident. Trey Gubb, Aganzanov, and Chertok were supposed to quickly prepare a brief report concerning all the actions the operations control group had taken, all the commands issued, and an analysis of the system's operation. For the time being, it was clear that the main cause of the accident had been the failure of the parachute system. Either the re-entry control system had malfunctioned, or there had been a failure in the circuits issuing commands to open the hatches. It had to be studied. All the specialists and designers were assembled at OKB-1, particularly the parachute specialists and electricians. A post-mortem analysis of possible scenarios was underway. At the firing range, commands were issued to prepare a detailed report about all glitches that had occurred during testing. On April 25th at 1 a.m., Komarov's remains arrived in Moscow. On board the aircraft with Komarov were Keldish, Kamanin and the other cosmonauts who had trained for the mission, Baikovsky, Gagarin, Gorbatko, Krunov, Kubashov, Nikolaev, and Yelizhev. They were met in Moscow at the airport by Komarov's wife, Valentina. His remains were then cremated and the urn placed in the Red Banner Hall of the Central House of the Soviet Army for mourners to pay homage.
pass, the Soviet news agency reported that a decree of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR had posthumously awarded Komarov a second gold star medal and a bronze bust of the hero would be erected in his hometown. Later that morning, a large delegation of OKB-1 workers headed by mission went to the central house of the Soviet army. They brought a wreath and stood in the honor guard. The second gold star had already been pinned on red velvet next to the first in front of the urn, which was a wash with flowers. The stream of Moscovites who had come to say farewell did not dry up until late in the evening. On April 26th, the public was still being admitted to the central house of the Soviet army. OKB-1's delegation drove in the long funeral procession from the central house to the House of Unions. The streets and the squares were filled with crowds of people. Sushlov, Keldish, Gagarin all spoke from the rostrum of the mausoleum at the funeral. An artillery salute thundered as the urn containing Komarov's ashes was placed in its niche in the Kremlin wall. The mourners then returned to the central house for the commemoration. Komarov's father spoke and said that Vladimir's death was a heavy loss for all Soviet people, but the pain that a father experiences with the loss of a son is especially great. He understood that in exploring a new field of human endeavor, casualties were inevitable among the trailblazers. How many brave souls perished before aviation became a safe means of transportation? Vladimir loved his parents, loved his country, but he had to fly. He died for a worthy cause, sparing the lives of others following after him. With the funeral completed, we'll move on to the accident investigation. At this time, all further piloted flights were indefinitely canceled. On April 27th, Ustinov met with the leading space industry representatives and established a special governmental commission headed by himself to determine the causes of the accident. The commission included seven subcommissions. The commission included two representatives from the Central Design Bureau of Experimental Machines, Chief Designer Mission and Deputy Chief Designer Bushayev. Soyuz 1 and 2 backup cosmonauts Gagarin and Baikovsky also served as members. Now, to understand how the accident happened, one needs to understand how the parachute system was supposed to work on the early Soyuz. The body of the descent module housed two containers for the parachute system, which were in the form of elliptical cylinders. The larger of the two was intended for the main parachute and the smaller for the backup system. The parachute bundles were pushed with great force into the cramped containers after the entire descent module had undergone heat treatment in a special autoclave at a temperature of several hundred degrees in order to polymerize the thermal protective coating.
Before this, the openings of the empty containers must be covered with flight lids, since being part of the exterior surface of the descent module, they have the same thermal protective coating. During descent, upon reaching an external pressure that corresponds to an altitude of 9.5 kilometers, a special pressure unit issues the command to jettison the lid of the main parachute system. After the parachutes are packed and the lids closed, the containers are airtight and normal atmospheric pressure is maintained inside them. When the container lids are jettisoned, the internal pressure of the container drops abruptly to the value corresponding to an altitude of 9.5 kilometers. The internal pressure of the descent module, which is close to one atmosphere, acts on the body of the container. Because of the differential pressure, compressive force acts over the entire surface of the container. The jettison lid sweeps the drogue parachute into the main stream. These in turn pull out the braking parachute. The timing mechanism counts down a delay of 17 seconds needed for the braking parachute to balloon open and decelerate the descent module to the designated descent speed. Responding to the command issued after 17 seconds, the braking parachute begins to pull the bundle containing the main parachute out of the container. After the canopy of the main parachute enters the stream, the braking parachute flies away with the bag in which the main parachute was stowed. During descent, with the main parachute system, the impact velocity is around 7 meters per second. To reduce the g-force loads upon impact, an independent soft landing system is used. One meter from the ground, a gamma-ray altimeter installed on the bottom of the descent module issues a signal to fire four solid-fuel braking engines. This reduces the landing speed from 7 to 2.5 meters per second. During soft landing, the bottom of the descent module is deformed only slightly. The shock absorbers of the seats act as a backup means to reduce the G-loads on the cosmonauts in the event the gamma-ray altimeter or solid-fuel engines fail. In order for the gamma-ray altimeter and soft landing engines to operate at an altitude of around 3 kilometers, the main pressure unit issues a signal causing the massive heat shield enclosing the entire outer bottom of the descent module to be jettisoned. If the main chute fails, there is a second pressure unit that monitors the external pressure and at an altitude of 5.5 kilometers, it operates a barometric instrument that measures pressure change during a fixed period of time. If the rate of pressure change exceeds the normal rate for the descent mode using the main parachute, then a command is issued to jettison the lid of the reserve parachute system. During a landing using the reserve parachute system, the soft landing system also reduces the impact velocity to 2.5 meters per second. 
Pyro cartridges are the final actuating element of all the commands. They jettison the hatches and braking parachute and on the ground the parachute cords. And where one pyro cartridge was sufficient in principle, there were at least two of them for reliability. In the electrical circuitry, all command issuing instruments, relays, and cable network had redundancy. A single failure of any element of the electrical circuitry could not cause the failure of the main or reserve parachutes. By June 20, 1967, the investigation was complete. The State Commission identified the cause of the accident as a release failure in the container block of the primary parachute. The parachute was packed in the container whose hatch was jettisoned, releasing a braking or drag parachute, slowing down the vehicle to a manageable 40 meters per second, sufficiently slow to allow the primary parachute to fill up with air instead of being shredded. The drag parachute itself was supposed to pull out the main parachute, but it did not do so because the main parachute had gotten jammed in the container. Under nominal circumstances, automated instruments on board the capsule would have detected an increase in velocity and discarded the primary drag and main parachutes and activated the backup system. But on Soyuz 1, once instruments detected the velocity increase, the capsule was unable to discard the primary chute since it was still stuck in the container. This meant that the primary drag chute was still deployed above the spacecraft. Once the single backup parachute was released, it was to have come out in the shape of a long, thin cylinder and then unfurl to its dome shape. In Soyuz 1's case, the backup chute began to extend under the still attached drag parachute from the primary system. Hindered by the flailing drag chute, the backup parachute never filled with air. Without any means of braking, the ship plummeted and hit the ground at a velocity of 144 kilometers per hour, or 40 meters per second. An autopsy of Komarov confirmed that he died on impact with the ground and that the effects of the fire were secondary. Despite rumors to the contrary, Komarov did not cry or scream before the impact, although during the last seconds he was surely aware that he had little chance to live. Due to the rapid velocity of descent, the frontal heat shield was never discarded at an altitude of 3 kilometers, and the soft landing engines never fired prior to touchdown. The latter, in fact, detonated after landing, burning with the 30 kilograms of concentrated hydrogen peroxide from the capsule's attitude control engines. From launch to impact, Komarov's ill-fated flight had lasted one day, two hours, 47 minutes, and 52 seconds. The state commission discovered that the reason that the primary parachute failed was due to friction within the container between the parachute and the inside walls of the container. The increased pressure within the parachute container 
relative to the load pressure outside the vehicle cause the parachute to simply block up against the insides of the container. This effect was never detected on four drops of the parachute system prior to the flight. As late as 1990, Chief Designer Mission continued to believe that the parachute had been incorrectly packed during preparations. The solar panel failure was later traced to the panel getting snagged on the external vacuum shield cover of the spacecraft. The 45K attitude control sensor had failed due to a steam-up of its optical surface. The commission recommended redesigning the parachute container by making it conical instead of cylindrical, increasing its internal volume and polishing the inside walls. Additional measures would include installing an autonomous mode for separating the primary drag chute and photographing the assembly of the parachute packages. There was also an unofficial and perhaps more likely version of the cause of the accident, one that attributed the accident to gross negligence on the part of technicians at the Central Design Bureau of Experimental Machine Building's manufacturing plant. During pre-flight preparations, the two Soyuz ships, 4 and 5, had been coated with thermal protection materials and then delivered into a high-temperature test chamber to polymerize the synthetic resin. In the case of the two Soyuz ships for the April 1967 mission, technicians baked the vehicles in the chamber with their parachute containers, but apparently without the covers for the containers. In Deputy Chief Designer Chertok's investigation of the matter in the early 1990s, he could not find anyone still alive who could remember why the covers had been left off. Due to the omissions of the covers, the interior of the parachute containers were coated with the polymerized resin that formed a very rough surface, thus eventually preventing the parachute from deploying on Soyuz 1. But the most chilling implication of this manufacturing oversight was that both Soyuz spacecraft were doomed to failure. If Komarov had not faced any troubles in orbit and the Soyuz 2 launch had gone on as scheduled, it is likely all four cosmonauts would have been lost. The unofficial cause of the accident was never included in the official report on Soyuz 1, partly because those at the manufacturing plant who knew of the violation of testing procedure chose to remain silent on the issue so as not to incriminate themselves. This, of course, still doesn't explain why technicians never noticed the rough surfaces during the packing of the parachute. Perhaps Mission's assertion that the parachutes were packed incorrectly was also true. The existence of concurrent official and unofficial versions raises a, at least a question of how the Soviets managed crisis resolution in their space program 
in the 1960s. Clearly, job security for someone was a big factor in squelching the unofficial version of the events. Another casualty of the post-Soyuz-1 investigation was Chief Designer Tkachev of the Scientific Research and Experimental Institute of the Parachute Landing Service, who had designed the Soyuz parachute system. Although the unofficial version clearly exonerated his organization of any blame, Tikhonoshev was fired from his job in 1968, ending his role in designing the parachute systems for Vostok, Voskhod, Zenit, Soyuz, and many other Soviet spacecraft of the era. Two parachute failures during tests following Soyuz 1 apparently sealed his fate. Through the years, there have been sporadic but unconfirmed reports of Komarov bidding his farewells in orbit, Komarov screaming to his death, and even Komarov attempting to repair his ship in space by climbing into inaccessible areas of his ship. All of these can be rejected as untruths or exaggerations. With regard to the foreign monitoring of his mission, there was one postscript to the mission that emerged 30 years after Soyuz 1. Boris A. Pokrovsky, a high-ranking official in the Command Measurement Complex, the Soviet Space Tracking Service, wrote in his memoir in 1996 that, quote, I remembered that several days after Komarov's death, I was summoned by General A.G. Karras, who told me on the telephone to bring a tape recorder to his office. It turned out that the USSR Ministry of Foreign Affairs had forwarded a tape received via diplomatic channels from West Germany. Remembering that I knew a little German, Andrei Gregorievich invited me to listen to the tape that German specialist had recorded by radio containing several minutes of information from on board Soyuz 1. The specialist commentary on the tape was naturally in German. From Komarov's brief phrases, it was possible to conclude that he was somehow distraught, and later, through the radio noise, it was possible to hear the word killed, but no words were spoken on the parachute system. There were words on the rise of temperature inside the ship. The recording was made, apparently, on one of the last orbits, if not the final one. The German commentary was not especially interesting. End quote. In conclusion, the Soyuz 1 flight should not have been carried out when it was. The spacecraft was insufficiently tested in space conditions and was certainly not ready for an ambitious rendezvous first mission that it was scheduled to accomplish. When Brezhnev or Ustinov complained about the lack of Soviet success in space, it translated into political pressure on Mission, Karamov, Keldish, and others. Thus, both sides made decisions that were counterproductive and eventually had fatal consequences to the Soviet space program. 
All told, the responsibility and guilt for the accident lay not on the conscience of any one man, but on the technological culture that considered high risk acceptable in the face of incessant political pressure from above. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.